Listeners be advised. The Holiloquy podcast discuss matters related to the human experience and many that are sexual in nature. Due to this, some conversations may surround triggering topics such as sexual violence, self-harm, abuse, and much more. Please be advised, a list of crisis and psychological resources will be available in the show notes of this episode. With that said, let's get started with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention please as we go through the following safety instructions. In the event that there is a loss of cabin pressure, oxygen mask will drop from the overhead. Place the mask over your nose and mouth. Breathe normally as oxygen is flowing even if the mask is not Be sure to adjust your own mask before helping others. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Holiloquy Podcast, where we step out and speak on sexuality. This is your favorite host, Vernon T. Scott, also known as Slater Jackson, and for you freaky motherfuckers out there, Sebastian Adams. On today's episode, we are doing another mix and match up. We are um, discussing rape culture as well as drunk sex. And I have the pleasure of being visited by, uh, look, I told you it's a beautiful spirit last episode. She is a very beautiful spirit. You should already know that if you listen to the last episode, if this is your first episode, it's okay. It's okay. Welcome. You're coming in on a a very rough conversation, but it's an educational conversation at the same time. Jennifer, how are you doing today? I am doing really well today. I'm so glad to be here, Vernon. Oh, we're happy to have you here with us. Um, So from the last episode, uh, for those who have not uh, listened to that yet, we know that you are a podcaster, uh, award-winning author. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Big, big big deal there for sure. Yeah. And you also uh, are a coach, correct? Um, I wouldn't necessarily use the word coach. I personally use the word mentor and healer, um, you know, and I, I basically, as well as I'm a master trainer for EFT International. So coach feels, I don't know, like it just doesn't quite feel like what I do. I mm-hmm. bottom line, I show up and I, and I, I, I share my experience, strength and hope. And I also hold space for people to find their truth. Mm, yes. So yeah. what you're saying is that you change people's lives. Yeah, you could say that. Or I help pe- <laughs> you know, I help people to change their own lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I because I really believe that all we ultimately any of us can do is maybe like wipe the window so somebody can see through it and mm-hmm. be able to see what's going on and offer perspective to somebody. But I think, you know, it's like we don't heal we we don't heal other people. We facilitate healing to happen within us, you know, but and I think to allow powers greater than ourselves to, you know, let the magic happen. Yes. And I think yeah. like that's something that um I've been trying to help other people understand like what someone comes to me they want advice on t- something they tell uh, they just say what should i do and i'm like I, I cannot really tell you what you should do because that is a choice that you have to make i could provide you with multiple different opportunities options um some 
things that I've seen personally where somebody who made this decision or that decision, what it led for them. But at the end of the day, the choice has to be your own. And when you do make that choice, own that decision and see where it takes you. If you end up being disappointed, that's okay. What did you learn from that disappointment? And how can you move to go further from that? Like own your own narrative. Um, Do not allow other people to move you from place to place essentially. Well, and you know, the whole idea of what should I do? It's like, I know from my own experience, the best advice, it will fall on deaf ears until you're ready to hear it. Mm. And, and it's sort of like, I could say to somebody, I'll sometimes if somebody really is like looking for guidance, I I might say something like, well, if it was me, this is probably what I would do. But, um, but I really do think that like, bottom line, you have to, we have to be ready for whatever it is that we are, we have to be ready. And if we're not ready, no, you know, even the best, the most sage wisdom from the wisest person, like God could, you know, come down from on high and be like, you know, Vernon, you must do this now. We're not going to listen. We're just Mm -hmm. not going to listen. I do find sometimes when it comes to decision-making though, that sometimes the best thing we can do is like, have somebody offer a piece of a suggestion or even think about a decision for ourselves, and then sit with how does it feel? Does it land in my body or do I get an immediate like, yeah, no, not for me. Because a lot of times, even like hearing the feedback and recognizing this is not the answer that's right for me can be a really powerful way to find, find out what makes sense. Mm, exactly. Yeah. All right, you all, it's time to get into this um, conversation. And whenever there's a conversation related to drunk sex or just um, sex while intoxicated, I do like to leave this uh, one message with everybody that uh, when it does come to um, drunk sex, intoxicated sex, consent, it goes out the door as soon as someone indulges in some kind of intoxicant. Um, And when it comes to that, uh, always be cognizant that their yes is not, it may not actually be their no, uh, their true yes, because they are intoxicated. Now, that does not mean that people are not given that chance for personal autonomy because personal autonomy is always a thing and there are those people who do enjoy having sex while intoxicated but if that is your preference if that's who you are and that is something that you do I always recommend doing that with someone that you trust and not to just engage in that kind of behavior with someone that you just do not know so Mm -hmm. just keep that in mind back your heads people if you are somebody who does look into those kind of activities now on with that being said um the first thing I wanted to talk about is essentially how we uh, are socialized or how we objectify sex workers within our um, our society. How, yes, we can appreciate the things that they do in terms of our own pleasure, uh, and we still stigmatize everything that they do, um, but we also rather than seeing sex workers as being fully human, being people who are professionals, people who are trying to just do a job and do a job well, provide a service because what they do is a service. We just look at them as an object that they're uh, a source of our pleasure only and not a full human being. So what is your sentiment about uh, surrounding that? 
everything you're saying, I'm like, uh, yes, yes, yes. And I mean, I think that in many ways, considering that the sex industry has been primarily female for a very long period of time, the idea that a woman is an object or the, the idea that, I mean, it's only been, I mean, this is a larger conversation than just sex work. This is a conversation about the fact that women Married women couldn't own their own credit card in the 1970s. That women, um, you know, it has only been literally like, what, 102 years that we as women in the United States have had the right to vote. That, um, you know, there are all of these, there are still archaic laws that make a woman a piece of property. Mm. And we are, we it is not, we are not that far away from the idea of women being chattel, but also like away from the idea of like, you know, rape within marriage wasn't even considered rape because a woman was was supposed to just do, you know, like it was her responsibility and it was her obligation to satisfy and meet the needs of her husband. So I guess from my perspective, of course, a sex worker is going to be regarded as the fulfillment of somebody else's desires and interests and needs and not necessarily be regarded as autonomous and her own or his own or their own being mm -hmm. simply because we live in a culture where misogyny um and the idea of you know heteros especially i think heterosexual cisgendered white men um really do kind of like have been culture you know like groomed and and assimilated into a culture that has basically told them that everything revolves around them and it's all about them all the time mm. and i mean i just think as more and more sex workers start empowering themselves to claim this as a profession that they're proud of that they are you know and and deserving of rights and deserving of of respect and all of these things and legalizing prostitution and legalizing, you know, and making, making it so that sex work can be something that people have, have assurances within. I mean, yes, 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 yes. Let's make this happen across the board. And, you know, um, this is, uh, of course, my own personal belief, uh, not really rooted in <laughs> facts, I guess, but I truly believe that one of the reasons why prostitution and uh, all forms of sex work is not legalized throughout the U.S. is because it's a protected privilege for the, um, the heterosexual white man, because I have that privilege of paying for the vagina, the ass, the, um, the dick, or whatever it is that I want from a person, I have that privilege of affording that. So because I have those finances, and I want to not allow other individuals to have this same privilege, then I want to make sure that this is demonized. I want there to be a stigma against this. I want it to be criminal, like drug usage. Um, cocaine, because it was the uh, a high dollar drug, that it, though it was you know illegal to sell or whatever, but it's not illegal to have and mm. partake in whenever you're at a, a elitist party or anything like that. Like what was it? Uh, something studio something uh, where they just studio did studio fifty four. There we go. Where they yeah. just did coke on a regular basis. Yet, yeah, constant. <laughs> yeah, crack is, which is a derivative of uh, coke, is like 
um demonized it's like uh it's a crime to have uh if you're caught snorting it you should go to jail and all these things so I, that's that's those trends is the thing that makes me believe that's the reason why prostitution and sex work is not going to be legal uh well i hope it is going to be legal but why it's not legal today well i also think that you've got you've got privilege and you've got protecting privilege you've got protecting you've got aspects of protecting you know protecting sort of the facade or the idea of like respectability that mm -hmm. is tied into you know cisgendered white male privilege and wealth And then you've also got, you know, the whole sort of like fetishizing of sin that and and the and sort of like the whole Christian idea of sex is bad, you know, Madonna whore thing. And yet, you know, some of the freakiest, kinkiest people out there are the are the evangelicals. The Holiloquy podcast focuses on the variability of sexual expression. When it comes to sexual expression, we often depend on pornography to illustrate how one must perform sexually. For those who have not learned this by now, the stuff you see in porn is not real. Pornography provides a singular perspective of sexual expression that is not often the reality we see during our own sexual encounters. The Holiloquy Podcast is a conversation that takes you outside of the compressed box of what many know about sex. Some of the topics we discuss includes kinks, condom usage, status disclosure, and past sexual experiences. The Holiloquy Podcast steps out on sexual norms and recognizes that the norm is not the only normal. Subscribe today and join the conversation. Some of the freakiest, kinkiest people out there are the are the evangelicals are the there is a new movie that just recently came out that's on hulu right now that i have not yet watched that i, I just have to get the spoons to to get it up to watch it called god forbid that is basically a documentary about jerry falwell jr and the sex scandal that basically caused him like undid him where he was like his wife had you know they apparently uh like had a thing going where he his wife had hooked up with this young very attractive man um and they were giving him a lot of privileges and a lot of opportunities and a lot of stuff but Falwell was like videotaping his wife and this guy and you know I mean we're talking like major kink here we're talking like major you know like like do dubious behavior and yet he's a pillar of society you know and there's so so i think the other part of it is that there's the protecting of the privilege but there's also the protecting of the forbidden fruit and the fact that you know if sex is legalized and there isn't necessarily this veil of secrecy over prostitution then um Is it as tasty? Is it as fun? Is it as, but also are you going like, like it goes against this idea of like the compartmentalizing of the self and mm -hmm. that you get these people who are like, you know, they're like the church going insurance salesman um, who, you know, can do no wrong. And then it's sort of like they die and you discover their massive collection of porn and their credit card receipts for all this stuff. And it's kind of this idea of like the secret lives that these people are living. And I do think that I don't, I cannot speak to other cultures 
you know, in that I, you know, I was raised in lily white America, but I do think that within white, you know, cisgendered white privileged male culture, there is a lot of compartmentalizing that goes on. Mm. And within that compartmentalizing, I think that there is a certain amount of like secret lives. And so I, I wonder if another part of why the idea of legalizing prostitution doesn't get a lot of traction is because that would legitimize something that people want to keep secret because if it was legitimized and brought out into the open, then all of a sudden, you know, these things that they've been able to keep like on the DL is no longer there. Oh, that's an amazing point. Like, <laughs> I, I really, I, I agree. I think that is part of it too, because like, like you said, uh, if this no longer, if this secret becomes something that is popular, something that's out there, will it still be as tasty? Right. And I, I <laughs> when you said the kink of sin, I was like, that's it. That's it. Like, I, I really do believe that the, uh, people do, I think it's a little bit of like the exhibitionist and mm-hmm. that some people may have within them that it's the fear of I might get caught doing something that's taboo that is making them want to pursue people, making them want to pay for, you know, the sex or in, indulge in those sexual acts that are, um, like you said, forbidden, the forbidden fruit. But I really do hope that we get to a point where people realize that you can still have that same level of, I guess, sexual intoxication that you get from that, um, those feelings of getting away with something by, you know, just setting up something like, hey, I find you attractive. I want us to meet in an undisclosed location. Uh, I want you to engage in sex sex with me. And I just want us to act as though we do not know each other. Mm-hmm. Like create a identity, create a persona. And that's another layer of compartmentalizing, but it's more playful at the same time too. Well, and it's consensual, mm-hmm. you know, and as we're talking, I'm actually really thinking we as a culture... And we talked about being groomed, you know, in the previous episode, we talked about being groomed. But we as a culture, I think um, a lot of times, like there is a certain kind of energy that when we get triggered and when our trauma response is activated, that really activates the fight or flight mechanism within us that activates a certain amount of like um, just, you know, emotional anxiousness. And I think that there are many of us who have not necessarily ever experienced what it means to be fully um, present, to be fully embodied, to be really in, like to really be like in just full autonomy and power and sovereignty and consent. And in many ways, like even the whole thing of like attraction, you know, talking about the bad boys and being groomed to be attracted to bad boys. I think that there are many of us who mistake being triggered and traumatized and activated in our fear for being sexually aroused. Mm. And if you think about the fact that we in, you know, there's now proof that we inherit the trauma of our ancestors. And now and now there's more information that not only 
are you like, are you, um, is your DNA, like is your genetic, like you are not just a cell in the body of your mother before you are born. You are a cell in your grandmother's body before you are born, because as you are forming or as your, as your mother is forming her ovaries inside of your grandmother's body, you are, you are an egg inside of your mother's body inside of your grandmother. So there is this way in which we are not just dealing with our own stuff, but we are all basically carrying the legacies of misogyny that go back for generation upon generation down the matrilineal lines that we are all bringing forward. And when we, and there's this really fascinating stuff I've been reading lately about attachment theory, but also about nervous system regulation. When a baby, like we, when we're in utero, our nervous system is completely dependent on our mother's nervous system. Like we do not have the ability to self-regulate at all. We're flooded by our mother's stress hormones. We're flooded by our mother's emotions. Um, and then when we're born, it's like the first two, three years of our life, but especially the first two years of our life, we co-regulate our nervous system with our mothers. If we have a mother who's anxious and high strung, then we never learn what it feels like to be calm and relaxed and grounded. We are, we basically imprint on anxious, dysregulated and distressed. But if we start thinking about it, it's like we've got these lines of like, cooking inside of these anxious bodies and we just pass it from one generation to the next to the next to the next and so what this just really makes me talk about or wonder as we're talking is like how many of us are really just have been so utterly programmed to perceive danger and excitement as sexual arousal when it's not necessarily that and yet we are so programmed like that idea of the forbidden fruit, because it's like it's itchy. You know, I mean, there's back in the day, I hopefully it, it is Pete, you got you. I don't know if you've ever heard of Spanish fly, mm -hmm. but like, yeah, you know, I remember hearing about it when I was a kid because my mom was working in like sex education and everything. And it just was such a horrible thing because it basically is like an, an excite. It, it causes the nervous system to get really, really overexcited and makes you just feel like super, super itchy to the point where you would do anything to not feel that way. And so for a lot of women, it would get them so itchy that they would just be like, sure, I'll have sex to try to get rid of this feeling. But that is not pleasure. And yet we interpret it so much as, you know, I think we interpret so much agitation, irritation, and distress as pleasure because it is so pervasive in our culture. And um, one of the things that, that came to mind was like how we are socialized to connect pain and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the things that I'm trying, you know, in some of the other work that I'm doing is to disassociate those things because even when it comes to the loss of the virginity uh, we're told oh it's supposed to hurt and um, then you learn well I learned over the years that oh it's not really supposed to hurt it's um, when it comes to heterosexual uh, sexual encounters it should be minor discomfort but it's not supposed to hurt there's a difference between those two and even outside of that um, I think of that phrase when it comes to queer uh, sex where it's uh, I because 
I was against um, pain, <laughs> even when it came to me losing my virginity. I was like, I don't want anything to hurt. I want someone who's going to be gentle, who's going to be take things slow. Um, but I remember hearing those phrases, oh, it hurts so good. And I'm like, that doesn't sound healthy to me. That doesn't sound like anything that I want. That doesn't sound like the sexual encounters that I want to engage in. And even when I look at some uh, pornography, uh, I see how aggressive someone uh, may be and how um, when they're extremely aggressive, pounding it out or whatever, and they're trying to run away or something like that, they make it seem as though it's sexy to pull somebody back while they're trying to run away or that that idea of uh, fucking someone and they're wanting to escape is a good thing and right. it's not it's that person might actually be in pain <laughs> like yeah. you have to acknowledge that they are in pain and there's something that you the person are doing to put them in pain well and I you remind me of a of of a I was like in my, like I was 20 and I had this lover who at one point, you know, we, he had, he had grabbed, he had grabbed me by the hips and he had done this thing where he had kind of like put his fingers, like he had his hands in me and he had kind of like put his fingers in, in on either side of my hip bones and had like kind of really stuck them in there. And I was like, ow, like that really hurts. That's not comfortable. And I will never forget his response. He went, no, it doesn't. That's, that's, that's supposed to be sexy. That's a turn on. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I am telling you, this is physically uncomfortable and you're hurting me right now. But he was so socialized to believe that what he was doing was supposed to be a turn on that he could not receive or hear the feedback I was giving him as a living, breathing human being saying, this is not comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. And instead was going with the fantasy of what he thought, probably based on porn, that made him think that, you know, that like even my feedback was just completely overridden with this idea of no this is supposed to be pleasurable and i mean i have a number of friends who are really on the kinky spectrum really you know into bdsm and other kinds of things where they really do get off on pain and where it is a transcendent experience for them but it is a consensual experience for them and in many ways you know, I've had a number of conversations with people about what it means to really own that part of oneself and recognize like what is the thing that works for you. And, you know, and I can also say that there's a really big difference between being like sort of starting cold and being really aroused and certain experiencing certain things like like something that could be I mean like you said even with sex where if you are warmed up something can be really pleasurable and it might have an edge of intensity to it that if you were not warmed up it would be painful but once you are warmed up it's just intensity but it's still like you know, skyrockets at night mm -hmm. um, or, you know, or in the after, you know, or in the afternoon. <laughs> but um, now I'm thinking of Anchorman. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Very specific reference. If you are not an Anchorman fan, you guys are probably like, what the hell is she talking about? But there's a very, very... <laughs> You do know what I'm talking about? I've seen that one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite part is the kittens. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, so I, I do think 
I think, and I also will say that in my experience, there's an incredible spectrum between around, you know, to quote the divinals, there's a fine line between pleasure and pain mm. that, you know, that I do, I think that there is an incredible spectrum. And some of us, some of us also are just way more sensitive than other people are. And so what might be, what might not really phase one person can absolutely phase another person. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. That. Like even like with nipple play, I uh, tell my sexual partners often, I have sen- sensitive nipples. Like you cannot bite those. Like nibbling, okay, that's fine. But if you like yours bitten on, like I have vampire teeth, cool, that's great. I, I can do that for you. But do not expect that's going to work on me because we all have different pleasure thresholds, pain thresholds, and look, some sensitive areas, you just cannot do those things, uh, regardless of how built up it is. Well, and age-wise, it makes a really big difference too, because Mm. your hormones will change things. And like when I was younger, I had way higher tolerance to any kind of nipple attention than I do now. But I actually have to say, I went through a period where, you know, I was in, in, I was actually, I spent 20 years as a tattooer before I shifted to like entirely doing my work as a, only as a healer, because I'd been doing tattooing as a healing art for many years, but needless to say, I was in the body mod world. And so at one point I decided to get my nipples pierced because I thought they would aesthetically, I thought they would be really pleasing and really lovely. Um, And, but gotta say, not like for me, it was like, it just added a level of sensitivity that completely took the fun out of any kind of anything when it came to my nipples. And so it was, I went from being somebody who was, you know, fairly like, I don't know, like it was just like, it was just sort of like something on the menu to, yeah, this is off the menu now. (laughs) So I think that it can really, it can, even within our own bodies, age, time, differences, things can make a difference on what works for you and what doesn't work for you. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that we um, talked about in the intake meeting is uh, I want to combine these two things. Yeah. Uh, The first one is what rape looks like, uh, because we do we have a, a certain look of what rape is supposed to be, but rape is not always that. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then the other thing is the concept that rape is not about sex. It's all, it's all about power. Yes. Uh, so what, what, what are some of the things that, well, not what you want to talk about, but <laughs> uh, what, what, are, what is your sentiments on those two, that those two things? Well, again, you and I are exactly, or I believe we're on the same page about mm-hmm. these things. Um, so first off, let's just talk about what I was taught or what I believe, you know, like my perception of rape as a child and as a young girl, because as a girl, you're sort of groomed to be aware of predators. Don't take candy from strangers. Don't get into a strange car, you know, like, so first off, the idea is that rape is going to happen with somebody you don't know. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the rape is violent that it is and that there is that that your life is threatened that and that it is sort of like this back alley on the streets or somebody breaks into your home or something but that it is that it is like a a violent act that is done to you by somebody you don't know and that it is forced injury you know and that there's injury that comes from it and that you know you're going to experience like these devastating emotional scars from the experience 
And I think the thing is that when we define rape by this very, very limited category, there are so many gray areas um, where our consent is revoked or where we never gave our consent in the first place, where it is a power play, where it is a power struggle, um, where it is not something we have agreed to. Now, I would say that I think rape has a spectrum in terms of in the same way that you could have on a scale of zero to 10, like zero being absolutely no pain whatsoever and 10 being the worst thing you've ever experienced or dead, you know, that rape does have a spectrum of like of degrees of horribleness to it. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and that I think that one of the reasons why a lot of times the date rapes or the, um, sort of casual hookup that just kind of goes over the edge or as you were talking about the non-consensual sex because somebody's intoxicated that a lot of times I think we dismiss that as being like I don't know kind of a stupid behavior or you know boys will be boys or oh you know they we were just not really thinking but we don't necessarily regard it as rape mm -hmm. and I think you and I talked about this and I did write about it in the book. So this is not the first time I've spoken about this, but I had an encounter, you know, when I was in art school where I made some really dumb choices that were basically did not have forethought because I was like 20 and I was just not thinking because I was 20 and I ended up at a party. And so I was fairly drunk and I ended up at a party and I had not, I didn't, and I had, I missed the last train out of the area. I was too broke to get a cab and I was too proud to call my, my parents and say, Hey, will you please come like drive 40 minutes South to come pick me up from a party. And so I ended up in a situation where I, hooked up with one of the people, the, one of the guys who lived in the apartment. And I was in a position where we were messing around. It was consensual. And then there got to be a point where he wanted to take it further. And I said, no, I'm not comfortable with that. And he kept on pushing. And I was a bit drunk, but I was sober enough that I knew what was going on. But I also was aware that I was between a rock and a hard place. I had no, I, I couldn't necessarily easily just put my clothes on. Like they didn't live in a great neighborhood. If I, if I left the party, I was going to end up sort of in a worse, less safe place than I was. And so there just came a point where he kept pushing. He kept on sort of knocking on the door, as it were. And I finally just let him in. I was like, you know what? This is the lesser of evils. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with other women a couple days after the party who were all sort of part of this community of people where one of the women looked at me and said, Jennifer, that he raped you. And I was like, really? Like, I didn't even register that that was what had happened because I did see my own agency in it. And the thing is, what I will say is that I really do see how I set myself up for this situation. Like, it was not like I was walking down an alley and somebody, you know, hijacked me. It wasn't like I was, you know, it wasn't even like I was in a dorm room and I was drunk and suddenly I have this like person on me. It was a lot more subtle than that. Like there was a lot of gray area. And yet I said no. And he kept coerce. He kept pushing. And on the very, very bottom line, you know, honest, like for me, 
And I, like I said in the previous one, you know, there's no such thing as trauma Olympics. So, you know, that there's no such thing as trauma Olympics. And yet I would say for me, in terms of on a scale of zero to 10, I would say I would probably give this particular infraction like a four or a five, not like a nine or a 10, just because I, I did the mental calculations for myself. I had put myself in a situation that was really um, awkward. I had gotten myself into a situation and, and where I kind of was like doing the math and the sort of the least amount of harm was basically going to be coming from acquiescing and having essentially coerced sex. Mm, I hate that happen. Um, but uh, also, thank you for sharing that story, too, uh, because uh, many people do not recognize how uh, coercion is uh, is rape or how yeah. when you are in a position where you are between a rock and a hard place is you have to make a decision. Like, what is the best outcome for me? Is it to be here where I know what the danger is or where I know what is going to happen? Or do I want to expose myself to um, pretty much being out in the cold alone in a strange place? And I have no idea where I'm going to go. I mean, um, it was it was, you know, uh, the neighborhood that the, they were in was like right on the edge of a really sketchy neighborhood in the inner city of Boston. And it was like two o'clock, you know, it was something around two or three o'clock in the morning. And I'm this like little like twink of a white girl. And, you know, just like really not in like it was the the risk of my my le my level of risk was lower in terms of my the my bodily harm. <laughs> Staying there and basically, you know, there was an old saying that, you know, back in the days in the 70s with hitchhiking that used to be people would have literally had the bumper sticker that said gas, grass or ass. And it was kind of like, you know, you either contribute money to my gasoline, mm -hmm. you contribute weed to, you know, get me, you know, like, let's let's, you know, light up and, you know, as we drive or you're going to give me sex for a ride like gas, grass or ass. And I think in some ways I kind of looked at this one and I was like, you know what? I've got to decide. Like, I don't have the money for the gas. I don't have the grass. I do have the ass. This is what I'm going to, this is, this is the, this is the currency that I can use to have a safe place to lay my head for the rest of the night and then get up at six o'clock in the morning and hop on the first subway to get home. Yeah. And, and like mentally, well, I, Emotion. I I get the. I definitely understand the decision behind it. I one hundred percent understand that because some people are in those situations, um, and some people are in those situations within their own marriages. Yes. Um, and well, in the choice between do you have do you have um, do you acquiesce to sex or do you potentially get beaten? You know. Exactly, and um, that's that's a conversation that. Uh, or even a reality some people are not willing to uh, acknowledge because like even when I uh, was doing like not necessarily workshops but programs with uh, the colleges that I worked at uh, related to sexual assault and talking about consent uh, I will always bring up that conversation about okay do you have ownership over your spouse and how there will be a lot of younger people who just like of course, it's it's that's my pussy. 
if if I want the sex, the pussy is supposed to be there for me to have the sex. But I'm like, but that pussy is attached to a whole person. And that whole person has a choice within that relationship. And how and breaking down the belief system that these kids have been socialized to believe in, um, that is within the uh, hegemony of our society, that you have that ownership of your spouse, that whatever they do cannot be done without your permission. And just tying how that belief system in itself is rooted within the rape culture of this society. Well, and, you know, for women, and especially as women start to age and your libido starts to shift and, um, you know, like there is a point where, I mean, there's a whole kind of cultural meme and sadly, like where it's like, how many times have we seen the story of the man who becomes bored with his wife and leaves her because and leaves her for another for a younger, more attractive model? Mm. Like, you know, and I will say that I am incredibly grateful to be married to who I'm married to. I have a really wonderful spouse and a really wonderful partnership. And I and and I do not get pressure from him to have sex when I am not in the mood when, you know, like when, when it's like my body is just like not there, but I get pressure from myself Mm. to feel like, oh my God, if I say no, like, like how many no's do I get before he gets bored? How many times am I going to be able to say, you know, I'm just not that into it right now, or I'm not that interested in this before my security, my, my, my sense of self, my commodity as a female becomes kind of like I lose my value. Mm. And I think I really do. If you, you know, if we broaden the idea of rape culture, but also sex as like currency in marriage, how many women continuously acquiesce, especially women when they're starting to and and I will say everybody's mileage varies. Everybody's mileage varies. But I do know from conversations with a number of women that for many of us, menopause really impacts our libido. And what once was a turn on is no longer necessarily such a turn on. And I really do wonder sometimes like how often because our culture is saying this is a necessary thing. Like, like it's expected, like even the idea that like you could argue for divorce because somebody is depriving you of sex. Right. You know? And so how often is, as, as the partner who is maybe the one with the lower libido, how often does that partner find themselves in a place where they imagine or feel obliged Mm -hmm. to accommodate or to do things that they may or may not really want to do themselves because of what our culture, because of all of these ideas of like, what is, what is good. Yeah. And that's just a reminder of how unfair and how unbalanced our culture is most definitely when it comes to interpartner relationships it's like whenever you have the concept of you know someone being at home the stay-at-home parent and how the other person's the breadwinner and because they are considered the breadwinner of the household they supposedly have more power and it's like you we don't teach we don't teach that there should be mutual respect 
uh, within these relationships that just because this person is at home uh, raising a family or whatever the case is, even if there's no family, that does not mean that they're less valuable. Um, just because this person is the uh, one who's working all the time does not mean that they have more value. Uh, because in the true partnership, in the true uh, relationship where it, there is give and take, where you're pouring in and receiving a, a equal, if not sometimes unbalanced way, that there's some you know reciprocity within that relationship. But if something were to happen the other partner can step up. The other partner can uh, really do what needs to be done to, uh, in order for the family to sustain itself. It's like, there's still value in that person who's at home, just as much value for that person who's out here in the streets working. Right, right. You know, you just made me think of something which, you know, we were talking and I think, I, I, I think, it's was in the previous episode where we were talking about legalization of prostitution mm -hmm. and, you know, and some of the theories of why is it not legal everywhere. And one of the things that I just realized is, you know, the other part of it is the financial side of it. If prostitution is legalized, that empowers the people and especially mostly women or, you know, I'd say, I don't know the percentages of how many, like proportionately, how many more female prostitutes are there to male, like male, female sex workers to male male sex workers, I don't know, mm -hmm. but I would be willing to bet you it's probably more primarily female. Mm -hmm. And if you bring in legalization, what you're also bringing in is financial autonomy and financial autonomy and rape culture are like that in the sense that so many women become financially dependent. And the thing is, you know, as I was saying before, it's like it wasn't until the 19 late 70s that a woman could have a credit card of her own with her own name and not her husband's name on it, that women could own, you know, that women can own property. Like if you watching Downton Abbey, that series, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about it is that the archaic rules of ownership, land ownership. We're talking like, you know, in the 1920s in England, you had to have a male heir to pass property onto. Females could not receive or inherit property. Um, and so if you start looking at this, like, you know, we're talking like a hundred years ago, less than a hundred years, like we're not even, we're talking what, 50 years ago with the 1970s, women have been financially like, um, uh, um, you know, cut off at the knees with their finances. And the males are so frequently, the male is the breadwinner. The male is the property owner. Everything is in, in his, is in his name. And one of the only kinds of currency that a lot of women have is sexuality. Mm. Oh, Lordy. It's, it's, it's uh, when you even, when you mentioned how rape culture is linked to uh, financial autonomy that triggered a thought of how you, you cannot like rape culture exists because of oppression rape culture exists because of stripping autonomy at any chance that we can and making and normalizing the oppression in any way possible be it through racism uh, financial means or even uh, sexism, anything of that, anything that contributes to uh, the oppression of another individual and the stripping of their autonomy is still rooted within that. Because once you have control over somebody's autonomy, you have power over them because they cannot make the decision for themselves. Um, and it's all well, and, 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 you know, 
I'm part of a I'm part of a really interesting, extremely radical prayer community that actually we pray the rosary. And so we go through the mysteries on a regular basis. And, you know, for anybody who's not familiar with them, because, you know, the mysteries, there's like the joyful mysteries, which is all about sort of like the 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 Mary's experience as a young woman and the birth of Jesus and his childhood. And then there's what are called the sorrowful mysteries, which are just like the passion of the Christ. And then there's like the glorious mysteries, which are about the resurrection and then Mary's ascension into heaven as the queen of heaven and earth. But there is this one mystery that nobody ever wants to choose to talk about or to like lead. And that is the second mystery in the sorrowful mysteries, the scourging at the pillar. And interestingly, you know, this is the the mystery where Jesus is like, you know, stripped and flayed and beaten within an inch of his life. And some people say he was actually, it was raped, like that this is something that happened. And, you know, this is something that in, um, you can look into this kind of scourging and this kind of like um, there was a, you know, within slave culture, I, in my, I've got a, my friend Michael has talked about this um, where, you know, it was like there was this thing I think called buck breaking, mm-hmm. but where, you know, it's like the public display of rape as a way to put people in their place, but also as a cautionary tale to show what will happen if you defy the you defy the empire if you defy the culture and in a way it's like it's it's not only about taking away another individual's autonomy but it's also this entire cultural idea of if you get uppity if you act out if you do these things if you break the rules then we're going to put your head on a spike like Mm -hmm. that there is something about about it that is not just about keeping a person or oppressing an individual it's about oppressing entire you know entire populations mm-hmm. and and like and basically maintaining power ironically for at this point in time a minority on this planet yes exactly Ooh, you shaking tables today <laughs> you are shaking some tables and I agree with you. And I thank my mama for that because she was the one who gave me she my mother was a, was a sex educator she's still alive but no longer you know at this point retired and um and uh very sweet fairly demented little old lady. But um when I was a child she was a sex educator and she was also like active in League of Women Voters and very you know she very very active like she was working getting women um out of state getting women to find abortions pre Roe versus Wade um and doing amazing things my very first by the time I was 18 my very first political t-shirt was a narrow t-shirt that my mom got for me right after I had registered to vote and said I'm pro choice and I vote and uh you know, I'm just incredibly grateful to have been raised by a very feminist, very politically aware mother. Oh, I love that for you. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely love you. Love that for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I will have to say, like, even when it comes to like for myself, uh, I definitely appreciate uh, not only just my mother, but uh, my aunts, too, because they were very outspoken and because of how outspoken they are that, you know, uh, pretty much became embedded in me and uh, I think that's another reason why I cannot keep a job because I talk too much uh, <laughs> but uh, I will always fight for myself and fight for the person who doesn't have a voice in the room because yeah. it's just one of those things that I've 
been raised to believe that you should always stick up for those people who can't stick up for themselves, that you should um, voice your opinions, even though someone does not want to hear it, but it is still important because these things matter. Um, So love it. And if you are one of those people who need that validation or that encouragement, speak up, let people know how you feel and voice your opinion because your opinion is important. Um, Now, before we get into the never have i ever segment um there was that one thing from the last episode that i said we were going to talk about in this episode which is how we have been uh in terms of a culture um socialized to enable violence against women uh and i see this very often Mm. in the tv shows that we watch where um it's like either you know actually let's go off of my research in general um how rape culture and legal practices are so very linked. Uh, how we blame the victim, which is also uh, often a, a, a woman uh, in terms of rape. But it, whenever we have a court case, we always demonize the person who is the true victim in the situation, uh, tarnish their name and do all these things. Uh, and that's normal to us. We mm-hmm. it's expected that this is going to happen. Whenever there's a, a woman who's violated, we talk about her history, how she was such a whore and how uh, she did this, that, and the third. She had sex with this person. Everybody knew that she was fucking around and all these other things. But at the end of the day, this person was the victim. Why right. are we shaming this person? Why are we trying to make her into the stigma or the taboo topic in the room so we don't discuss it this person was harmed go after the person who harmed this person well and even the idea that like if somebody has sex with one person and this is i mean we could go down an entire rabbit hole about the whole concept of incels Mm -hmm. and you know and like the idea of because she's pretty and attractive and she was interested in that one person therefore that means that i'm entitled to have sex with her as well like the idea that if a woman is sexually active or anybody is really sexually active and is really like enjoys sex that somehow that just means that anybody's entitled to have sex with them i mean what the fuck people like this is not like Ugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it enrages you <laughs> yeah it, it it is just it well and you know i was thinking as we were talking about you know being culture you know socialized towards it and i you know I, I talked a lot about movie references in our last interview or last podcast episode and you know like another example like the movie the Farrelly brothers movie something about mary mm-hmm. like if that is that movie is absolutely repugnant It is a movie about a whole bunch of different men who are obsessed with this one woman, Mary, and all of them are stalking her. Every one of them is stalking her. And yet, you know, and it's it is a funny movie. Like, I think the Farrelly brothers are very, very funny um, directors and producers and make great movies. But this movie in particular is like, it's so sad that we live in a culture that thinks that's funny like you know it, when you said that i immediately started to think about the movie porkies uh which when i was young i loved it because it was hilarious and all that but you know thinking about i could have rewatched that as an adult after i've done all my research i know the problems of it the last time i saw it when i was like 15 i was like okay this is quite problematic but i'm still enjoying it but you know 15 dumb anyways mm-hmm. but it was 
very problematic to even uh, think about like that scene where they found the hole to look at these young ladies while they were showering and yeah. we're not having the conversation how that's inappropriate but that was mm -hmm. expected of right. guys to do something like that even the when he put his penis in that hole and um the women on the other side oh, that's so funny ha, 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 ha. that is not really rooted in reality because no I don't... that is not rooted in reality <laughs> <laughs> i don't know any woman or any person who uh actually has sex out here uh, would appreciate a random dick coming out of nowhere if they're not at a glory hole and expecting one to pop out Right, right, right. Well, and you know, it, it sort of makes me wonder how many of the people, you know, the generation of men who are sending dick pics now watched Porky's as little kids and actually think that like, a, you know, that like, like, I mean, it, basically a dick pic is a digital Porky's, you know, oh or a digital God, yes. glory hole. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But it's like, dude, yeah, no, no woman is ever, no woman is ever going to be impressed when you randomly send her her dick pic. No, just no, doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Like, does even, not work that way. Like for myself, like, yeah, if I see a cute dick, it's just like, okay, that's actually cute. And right. most definitely has some good flair, good design. You did something, you put some artwork into this. I like your artistry. But at the same time, you could have asked. Like you could have just been you like, hey. You could have asked. You could have asked. Like do, you, yeah. like, do you want to see an artistic dick pic? You know what? Yes, I do, because I don't get enough of that. Like <laughs> might I as actually well. I had this friend a number of years ago who's um who had gotten her husband. They they're a real Really, really wonderful, amazingly sexually progressive, um, you know, polyamorous, like queer, kinky, amazing couple, just amazing people. But anyway, they 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 found up they found this like amazing like picture book that has glory hole like it's pictures. It's so funny. It's like it's like a kid's book, but with like a hole for your dick. And like it's like you hold up the book and like stick your penis through it. And then you can like and and so it's sort of like so like one of them is like a cowboy riding and like one of them is like a, a merm like a merman riding, you know. So it's just like it's just hysterically funny. That is an example of artistic dick pics that are also consensual. And where it's like there's a, and yes, I know about this because I was consent, I consented to seeing a picture, which was hysterically funny and really, really amusing. But, um, you know, if it's not consensual, then it doesn't matter how attractive it is. It wasn't agreed upon. Exactly. Yeah. And um, just to add a nugget on these dick pics for people, just because you send a dick pic does not mean that the other person is required to send anything to you. Because always remember that dick pic was not invited. Right. right. And we another thing that uh, oh, wish we don't have a the time to talk about it, mm -hmm. but that transactional actions uh, most definitely when it comes to like um you know sex is rooted in rape culture like oh because um, the tick for tack thing like because i did this you're expected to do that 
that's rooted in that. That's taking away the uh, expectation of consent that you're not asking for it. Now, if you do agree upon, hey, if I send you a dick pic, are you willing to send something back to me? And they're just like, yes, then okay, that's more consensual. Now, if they don't do it, then that's just on them. That might be a flag that this probably might not be the person that you need to trust with your body <laughs> if they're not willing to, you know, follow through on any kind of agreement that you both mutually agreed upon. But let's let's bring this kind of conversation up. Talk mm-hmm. to people, ask them, are they okay with having this, having a dick pic? It's not sexy. Well, and I think that, you know, talking about like we've been sort of having this conversation through this entire episode about transaction of sex as commodity and Mm -hmm. or a currency and transactional stuff and like even the idea of like you go on a date and somebody takes you out to a really fancy restaurant and what is expected of you Mm -hmm. and really all that should be expected of you is like the opportunity to get to know you and your scintillating company and like the pleasure of somebody just sharing time with you and that it should be a gift freely given but we live i think we live unfortunately we live in a culture where there are a lot of people who will start wondering like oh my god he just spent three hundred dollars on a really fancy meal for me and brought me Mm -hmm. a bouquet of flowers what do i now owe him and it i mean it is it's a big one. And like, that's part of the reason why for first dates, I always just say we're going to split it even before we even um, go out. Like I pay for my stuff. You pay for your stuff because I don't want the person I'm with to feel obligated that they need to have sex because I pay for everything. I, I'm trying to get to know you pay for your own stuff. I would love to see how you spend your money too. That way, if I do want to pay for a full date all by myself, I know, I can budget how much I want. Uh, I'm going to spend I did not start like letting men pay for me and being raised by a feminist, um, you know, and I was raised in a time where Dutch treat was was something I who knows where that that's probably some massive racist comment of Dutch treat. But, you know, um, I I remember like I grew up like sharing the money. I always pulled my wallet out. I never, ever, ever expected somebody to pay for me. And I had a lot of autonomy as a result of that. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s when I started to be like, okay, I'll let this guy pay for a meal and sort of watch what was happening with it. But and that was something that was just really telling was like, is somebody willing to just is somebody going to be gracious with me? Is there reciprocity? But like with my husband, when he and I started courting, we were going back and forth where it would be like he'd pay for a meal, then I would pay for a meal. And and we had kind of this back and forth going on. But I do think that one of the things that does give us power when it comes to when it comes to consensual relationships is having your own purse, having your own wallet mm-hmm. and never being in a situation where you are backed up against a corner where it's like you're feeling obliged to, you know, have sex with somebody or give them sexual favors of some sort or another because you're in a you're in a position that you cannot afford. Mm. Speak those words. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. We're going to save that message. Y'all better, you know, indulge in that. If you have to go back, please go back. All of that. Yes. Like, remove the obligation. Remove the obligation. Remove the obligation. 
Yeah. Um, so never have I ever. We'll never do one and then we'll okay. close it out. Never have I ever flirted with someone else in front of a significant other. Um, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, yeah, like who hasn't? See, that's what, that's my, like, uh, yes, I have, but. <laughs> I mean, who hasn't? I, I guess what I would say, I guess what I would say about that is, um, I mean, I think there's a really difference between there's a really big difference between harmless flirting and trying to make somebody jealous. So mm-hmm. never have I ever. And I mean that literally, I've never, ever flirted with somebody to make another person jealous like that. Yeah. No, but I have certainly been flirtatious and have had lovely, you know, like banter and jokes and fun going on with a significant other in my presence. Mm. And I hope everybody's been able to like, you know, and I would say if you're in a partnership with somebody who is so insecure that you cannot look at another person or be flattering to another person or dress in, you know, like look luscious around another person and, and, and have them like get freaked out by that, then there may be something going on in that relationship that needs some attention. I agree 100%. Like for me, I do not want or need a, a partner that polices how sexy I am or sexy yeah. how uh, or how sexy I can be. Because if I walk out this door and my intentions is to be sexy enough that I could pull somebody, I'm going to walk out the door sexy enough that I will pull someone. But we're oh, not going yeah. to do anything. <laughs> because look, uh, I'm a firm believer that I choose my partner every single day and I want my partner to also choose me every single day. And at the end of the day, I woke up, I have this person, I want this person. Tomorrow, I want this person. And I think I'm going, and I know I'm going to want this person on an ongoing basis. No other person is going to like distract me. And even with me being Polly, what, whoever I or whoever my future partner uh, engage with and add to our relationship is still going to be the same thing like you can't steal me from somebody (laughs) well and I've been you know I we just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary and I identify as a pen fidelitous person I I just for me it's it's always the idea of pen fidelity like multi-loyalties like that that has always been really what it's the core is and yet I've been you know, sexually exclusive with this one person for 20, you know, for more for we met in we met in January of 20 of 2000. So I've been in a in an exclusive relationship for 22 years now, but I do not consider myself monogamous. I consider myself like I repledge myself and recommit to my relationship with this partner on a daily basis. And it is a choice every single day to be like, I do not assume that that he or I are by default monogamous with each other simply because that is how it is. It is a deliberate choice on a daily basis. And it is a deliberate choice on a daily basis to keep showing up for the relationship, to be in the relationship. And I think, you know, he and I both choose each other every single day. Love it. Love it. 
Oof, on that note, thank you so much uh, for coming on to the podcast. You are greatly appreciated, Jennifer. Uh, Vernon, it has been such a blast. I, I just knew you and I were going to have like a really juicy conversation. And I use that right. word deliberately. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I hope um, the listeners are just as high spirited as I am and as you are, mm-hmm. um, because it was a rough uh, conversation a rough topic to have a conversation about, but I think it was a needed conversation. Um, Do you have any last words that you'd like to share before I close this out? I guess when it comes to the idea of, of, of intoxicated rape culture, um, you know, that it's like some shit, like one, if you make a mistake and you end up in a situation where you're compromised and you you choose the lesser of evils, please forgive yourself. Like it is what it is. And sometimes it really is like, you know, you acquiesce to sex or you end up on the street at three o'clock in the morning and it's just easier to do the one versus the other. But the other thing is, I guess I would say if you can possibly check yourself before you wreck yourself, like it is worth having a strategy. It is actually worth having a plan. If you're going to go to a party, how are you going to get home? Like thinking these things through. And, you know, this may be like, no, duh. But like for me, when I was 20 years old or 21 years, I think I was like 21, you know, when this happened for me, maybe 22, but I wasn't very old. The thing was, I was so naive and young, I really wasn't thinking and having, you know, sort of being not neurotypical and with a little bit of, you know, ADHD runs in my family. It just didn't even occur to me that I need to think about how I was going to get home. I just was going to go with the flow and find a way. (laughs) And so I guess I would say is like, if you are going to be in a situation that is unusual for you, if you're going to a party, if you're going to a strange place, if you're going to something that you were not expecting, have checks and balances, have people you're checking in with, maybe have a designated driver or somebody that you're with. Think about your strategies of how are you going to get yourself back to safety? How are you going to take care of yourself? What are you going to do that will, you know, in hopefully decrease like harm reduction, reduce, like decrease your risk of getting into a situation where you are compromised. Yes. And um, just to add on to that, um, just a little bit, uh, like most definitely if you are in a situation where there's like a bus system that you can use, just knowing when that last stop is uh and just having yourself prepared like i get that the party is fun is lit you're having a good time but when you know that time is pushing up you got to leave that party give yourself enough time where you can secure your seat the party is still going to be there you're still going to be here too so well and the challenge of course is if you're too intoxicated you might just say fuck it and, <laughs> you know and that's that's the thing it's like i remember even at the party that i was talking about where it was like a whole bunch of people were getting ready to leave and i was drunk and i said fuck it and you know like because people were like up oh, the last subway is leaving and a whole bunch of people were getting ready to go out the door and i just was not in my right mind enough to be like oh yeah i need to do that so i'm not sure like and then i guess what i would say is if you're finding yourself in a situation where you are drunk in that way and getting into compromising situations maybe you need to look at your relationship with alcohol mm, good point 
Good yeah. point. Ooh, not that she's making people self-reflect, Lord. <laughs> Think yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that. That's that is definitely part of what I do. <laughs> well, on that note, everyone, thank you all so much for listening to the Holy Liquid Podcast, where we step out and speak on sexuality. Just in case no one else told you this today, you are beautiful, you are worthy of happiness and joy, you are enough in this. So um, you may not live up to the expectations of others, but that is okay. You are only required to walk in your own shoes. May each day you live lead you towards abundance. With that said, love you all and see you next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Holiloquy Podcast, where we step out and speak on sexuality. You can subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcasting app and find us on the web at www.holiloquy.com. That's www.heaux l-i-l-o-q-u-y dot com share the podcast with your friends and join the conversation